Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. As data protection or privacy officer, especially in a smaller organization, you have to be a jack of all trades. And that also means doing things that may not always be your preferred part of the law. I am a constitutional lawyer by training. I care about fundamental rights. But the one thing that I failed over and over again at university was contract law. So guess what? That is the topic for today. Or better said, how to deal with your vendors and service providers. For whether you like it or not, vendor contracts are a key part of ensuring the data of your customers and your employees are processed in accordance with the law. And sometimes even that can be fun. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation, Paul, because I think we're just going to pick a topic and go to town on it, which I like the idea of that. But first... Yeah, I think that would be nice for change. I mean, we've done the updates, and there are not too many new big updates. Of course, we have the new EDPB chair, and also on behalf of Serious Privacy, congratulations. We would love to have you on at some point. Uh, But it's still relatively quiet in the land of privacy and data protection, apart from state shh, laws. Shh. Something. You just stirred the universe. You, you challenged fate. But that's okay. Right, right now, we're good with challenging fate and, and things that happen. So, okay, unexpected question. Who are the most important people in your life? My friends. There you go. And I would say my family and friends. Yeah. Paul has to be on there. I speak to Paul more than I speak to my husband. Let's be honest, people. Well, I'm not sure that that is true. At least you see your husband every day. It is true. It is true. And I am going to do my best to, I don't think we heard anything back about sponsorship for Stockholm or anything. If anybody out there wants to sponsor me to travel to Stockholm, the offer is there. But uh, I think Tim and I, I think we have points and we're going to book our, you know, cheap economy seats and Hope we can get it upgraded, <laughs> but go ahead and book it to come. So I need to check the date so we can come. And if you're wondering what we're talking about, Paul and I were reached out to by the organizers of this conference in Stockholm. The Nordic Privacy the, Arena. The Nordic Privacy Arena being held in September, the end of September, which I had an Alaska cruise booked, and I'm happy to forego that. And instead, put the funds towards uh, getting over to Stockholm. I can't go to Stockholm without bringing my husband. That that would just be uncool. And uh, yeah, and spend some but, time in Europe instead. I mean, exactly. there were lots of lots of islands around Stockholm. Sweden is wonderful still that time of year. So we're going to defer to Paul for for what we're going to be doing there. But we were invited to do the podcast recording on stage, like a conference session. So it's really cool. 
We're excited Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm also really excited about that. And uh, yeah, so if ever, anybody wants to see us live on stage, Stockholm is the place to be this September. Absolutely. In any case, Stockholm is the place to be this September because I've been to the Nordic Privacy Arena now a couple of times and it is always absolutely amazing. And I think it is a safe bet to say that the new chair of the EDPB might make an appearance, given that she's from Finland. Uh, so that could be uh, that could be something to to predict. And she could actually, if she is going to be there, she we we might get her to join us for part of the conversation on stage. Uh, but there is quite a few people actually that I would love to reach out to and and have us join for a conversation live on stage and. We have to do a lot of work to prepare for that, also to find out how we're going to do all of that technically <laughs> while we are in the same room and get the right mics and all of that. I'm sure it will work out fine. And so, yeah, this will be exciting. And I am I'm sure it. we'll make it work somehow. It will. So today for a topic, something that I'm very invested in, and I know that you now have to deal a lot with it. Let's talk about third-party risk management. Oh boy. Oh boy. Here we go. And let's, let's start with it and say that Paul and I will speak particularly from a data protection and privacy perspective. However, third party risk management is much, much broader than that. You have to look at are they financially stable? Are the key parties within the third party, like their executives or the people handling the business? Are they competent? Are they capable? Have they filed bankruptcy every year for every job or every company they've ever started? Uh, different things like that. So you have to look at the at the reputation, their capabilities. You can't just go chasing after every vendor out there. And I am going to use the term vendor, although we understand that there are many, many terms out there. Service providers, third parties, processors, sub-processors, just, yeah, it's crazy. But let's start with uh, vendor management. I'm just going to call it vendor management and oversight. Because again, we're going to speak mostly from the privacy data protection perspective, but we do understand there's a lot of other areas to take into account. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'll, I'll make the disclaimer that I just talk here based on my experience in, in, in recent years. So anything that I will say here is not necessarily relevant for the company I work for today, and also does not necessarily present their views. Uh, I think given that we are going so close to our daily business now, yes, yeah, um, disclaimer that we make for me too. Disclaimer. Yep. Uh, but I think in general, if you if you talk about vendor management, it is always good to start with an RFP or an RFI, so a request for proposals, a request for information, where you develop together with your um, with your colleagues in legal, with your colleagues in the operational teams that procurement. might need the software. There is a procurement department, also them. But that you develop a standardized list of questions that you ask to all the vendors to make an honest comparison. And that goes beyond pricing. Of course, yeah. pricing is important. But I've, over the past couple of years, seen a lot of RFPs and RFIs come in, especially when I still did part of the sales at Nimity. I've also sent out quite a few, uh, and there is always a, a fair chunk of questions that relate to security, also to uh, to privacy and data protection, uh, but also some some more basic things. I want to know where the company is actually located. Uh, given that I'm based in Europe, I want to know if they are 
uh, if they have a European headquarters or if not, if they have appointed a representative, because yeah. if they haven't, that would be a red flag. Um, I would like to get a copy of their data protection notice or privacy statement or whatever, especially if that is not on their website. Yeah. Uh, guarantees on international transfers and server locations, guarantees or a description of the procedure for government access requests. Uh, all those fun things related to international transfers. Maybe soon we'll ask for U.S. vendors as well. Are you certified under the EU-US? The thingy. The thingy, exactly. Well, probably we will actually need to call it the EU-US data privacy framework because nobody will understand thingy certification. Well, but that would be an easy way to identify which ones are paying attention to what we do, but that shouldn't necessarily prejudice the whole process. But you're right. When it comes to RFPs and RFIs, a couple of things on there to point out. This is, this is where to start from. Actually, no, let's, let's back up a little bit. What is it that you're looking to outsource? And is there something a vendor you already have vetted does? In many times, whether you're a small company or a large company, there is not a central database of service providers, vendors. Like I said, I'm just going to use the word vendors, but I encompass all the others that you're already using that are already vetted rather than trying to bring on a new one. And oftentimes, if you can collect all the services that that one vendor offers together, then you might be able to drive some price efficiencies, uh, different things like that, build a stronger relationship because very rarely do you hire a vendor just for a one-off and you don't care about build, building a relationship. Usually you want to build a relationship with someone. And this is all of them, whether it's, you know, a, a vendor providing a widget or an e-widget or providing consulting or legal services or something like that. You really do want to build that relationship mm -hmm. and get to know the people. So back up from the RFP, RFI. See, is there a central database of service providers that you can look up, of vendors that you can look up and see? Um, is there someone that's already providing this? Now, I get it. There's a lot of different vendors that do the same things, but one may do it better than another, and you might actually want two separate vendors. But you might recognize pricing efficiencies if you used one vendor, but are you going to get what you need from that vendor if they don't even offer what the competing vendor offers. So you need to take that into account as well. And I know very few companies that do a vendor database as well, where everyone in the business can access and see what vendors you have and what services do they offer. Yeah. And you need to make sure if it's a current vendor and you're expanding the scope to a new service or a new product, a new widget, that you need to make sure that that particular service product or widget is covered under the current contract because they may have been reviewed and only approved for certain items. And this might be a huge scope creep that might involve lots of different new levels of personal data or trade secrets or anything else that you might, might be in a different country. It might be under a different regulated set of laws that it might actually do. So you need to check all of those things as well. Yeah. For RFPs and that's also and RFPs, why it's helpful. Sorry, that's also why it's helpful to your companies of any decent size to have a contract management system in place yes. so that you can look up all those things. And if someone has a really good contract management system, holler at me. I have tried so many. <laughs> and uh, and yes, I know we have very stringent requirements for what we want with them. And then inevitably they they fail on one piece or another. But 
if nothing else, Paul is absolutely right. You need a contract management system because there are so many different parts of the contract that you're going to need to track and report on. Some of the examples, what are the limitation of liabilities? What are the indemnifications? Do you have an unended indemnification that there is no limit to, unlimited? Well, that might be a report that your finance or CFO needs to make a report to the board of directors annually or more often than annually. So you need to know where your financial vulnerabilities are. Where do you have unlimited, uncapped, different things like this? Do you have specific insurance requirements that are required where they have to be listed as a third-party beneficiary or something like that? You need to be able to track those. Those are aside from privacy and security. On privacy and security, you need to make sure that you're tracking what is their time frame for reporting a breach? What is their definition of a breach? Does it include actual or suspected? The new Quebec re- requires suspected. And don't say that just because a law doesn't apply to you, it applies to your customer, that you cannot agree to do those things because the customer is going to say, well, yeah, but I'm outsourcing this to you. Therefore, I need you to give it to me in the time mm-hmm. frame that I'm regulated under. So sometimes you can negotiate that. Because truth, they're not regulated until they find out. So, you know, there there might be some limitations on there. But let me just tell you, people, 24 hours is pretty standard now that, that you need well, to give um, them a heads up. Yeah. And there is still a lot of pushback for 24 hours. Yeah, and there really the 48 is. Or this, even the 72 is, is still fairly ubiquitous. Oh, it but is. But indeed, so breach know, notifications is, is one of the main it. things. You got to track it, but you also need to make sure that it is absolutely clear in your data processing agreement or data processing addendum or whatever they call it, that it is indeed all properly documented. And yes. uh, that you are being notified that you have agreement on what should be notified. So I prefer to uh, not just refer to a breach, but also to more generic security incidents that may yep. impact customer data. because. Your service provider may say this is not a breach, whereas according to your definition or your consistent interpretation or that of your supervisory authority, exactly, it might qualify as a breach. So you need to you need to be very clear there, Uh, and that brings us to the difficult topic of the data processing agreement. Oh, it is, it is, and I will say it's interesting that we talk about making sure it's consistent because. Once a high tech came into play and business associates were directly subject to HIPAA as opposed to only the covered entities, I became very, very strict about business associate agreements. There was to be absolutely teetotally nothing in the business associate agreement other than what HIPAA dictated needed to be in the business associate agreement. And the reason I did that is because now the impositions on A business associate has to be passed down to their vendors who may be downstream business associates. It's very hard to do that for a DPA. Very, very difficult to do because you don't have dictated specific things that need to be in a DPA. You have to address this issue. It doesn't tell you what the addressing needs to be. Standard contractual clauses is a whole different different subject matter. Very few companies do standard contractual clauses without some sort of covering DPA in front of it. 
And mm-hmm. there's no law that says what is dictated in a DPA. So they are wide open for negotiation. But if you have to pass that down to your service providers or you have to, you're subject to something that your customers are subject to, it becomes very complicated on the DPA. Yeah, absolutely. In any case, for me, a DPA has always been a, a complex issue because if you look at the GDPR, it is the data controller that should give instructions to the data processor. When does that actually really happen? Well, it implies that indeed the data controller should draft a DPA with those instructions for the data processor. In practice, however, it is more the other way around. And the instructions are the contract. And, and you can sign at the dot as a, as a data controller, uh, which of course is also a bit strange because then the one that is supposed to receive the instructions is telling you, Oh yeah, these are the instructions that you can give me. Um, and they are non-negotiable. Exactly. Exactly. Even so far as to, especially software vendors, will say that you have to agree to certain security protocols and certain warranties of the data that you're putting in their system. And there are some people who say, no, the service provider is not going to tell me what to do, but be legitimate. The service provider, if they're a SaaS provider, or a platform is a service, a software is a service, or whatever is a service. They have certain things that they have to adhere to. And if they don't require their customers who are putting data in that system to adhere to it, then they're at risk and they're, they're at bigger risk. So, so it does become very delicate, this negotiation process between the DPA. And trust me, there are going to be times when you are going to disagree with your vendor on the interpretation of a law. I can go back to the BAA example. There are so many times. Or the GDPR. Yeah. Well, the BAA is simple because it's so short and it's dictated by law. People misinterpret whether or not they're a business associate or even a covered entity for that matter. And they want the business associate agreement signed. So So if you think of the complications in that short, little, simple, legally dictated scenario there, imagine how much bigger that is when you're looking at the GDPR or the LGPD, mm-hmm. or PIPEDA, PIPEDA, whichever way you want to say it, or PIPL, or any of these, there are going to be disagreements as to the interpretation of what those words mean. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I don't disagree that it needs to be a negotiation and that especially on the security side, Sander can say, well, these these are things that are, that are non-negotiable for us. But right. some of the more, more standard things, like notification deadlines, like the level of granularity with which the data types are spelled out in the annexes to the agreement. Yeah. All those kind of things. How much involvement the customer is going to have if the vendor does have a data breach. Yes. Exactly. As the customer, we want to be involved. We want the updates. We want to be involved in the investigation. If it involves our data, we want to be dictating what the breach does. On a practical level, that ain't happening. No, and those. Hopefully, your vendor is more experienced than to only have one customer. They cannot let 50,000 customers dictate how they investigate a breach. Let's. Of course not. And, and that's also not the expectation that I would ever have. Some customers do. There are certain things where I want to be able to negotiate or get a very good explanation why that yes. is not possible. And yes. What I am, what I'm, not willing to do is sign 
a data processing agreement that I can download from a website and only put my signature on that then also has clauses that says that they can unilaterally change it. Yeah. It is a contract. It is a con- Well, for me, it is illegal. Yeah. A contract is an agreement between two parties on a certain, a certain legal qualification. So you need the agreement. And that means that you cannot unilaterally change what you have agreed. Same thing for the security measures that vendors will put in place. And they'll say, as updated time to time, you need to tell me what you're going to change on the security protocols because you might not think something is important, but we might. But we Mm -hmm. need to be kept apprised of everything that you're doing. Now, of course, there is always talking about security and this the subprocessors and how you add a subprocessor. And this is a very delicate point with a lot of companies nowadays because very rarely, let's be honest, people, very rarely does the privacy office necessarily have 30 days advance. And that's 30 days from the time everything is settled and signed and the time they're going to start. Very rarely does your privacy office have enough time in advance to be able to give all the customers an update on a proposed subprocessor. I like that the new standard contractual clause gives you the ability to negotiate that some, but from the customer perspective, and like I said, this is over years and years of experience. Please do not ascribe anything I say necessarily to what is happening at the Mm -hmm. company I am at now. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. This is just over years years of experience talking to other people, studying this for, for a long time. Seriously, people, disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. And that's for Paul's side too. This is just what we know in our experience. And so getting back to that, can I, did I guess tame it enough? Do I need to put it in there enough? And I'm not <laughs> saying methinks the lady doth protest too much. I really don't want people to ascribe this. Now I'm with the publicly traded company. I want to be overly careful about what people mm-hmm. may take that I say or do. Okay. Pass that. Now, but when it comes to the sub processors, very, very touchy subject because the privacy office isn't going to know, but let's go one step further. You seriously don't account in the contract that you can provide some notices via email. I get it. Some companies are like, oh, no, we want the hard mail. This means I have to hard mail 50,000 notifications of a potential change of a subprocessor? Really? Not going to happen. So I always like to add in there that notices can be provided via email. Now, I have a lot of contract attorneys that push back and say, well, yeah, but we have a general legal at blah, blah, blah email, and none of us check it on a regular basis. Okay, well, why not put notice can be provided via email and hard copy may be waived via that email if both parties agree. Silence is not agreement. So, but it is really difficult to track how to notify, especially if there are different ways of notification. If you're going to notify a breach, you do these three things. If you're going to notify a merger and acquisition, you do these things. No, make it, make it simple. Subprocessors are very complicated. What I do see companies doing is listing their subprocessors publicly on their website, whether or not it's a hidden URL or not. And rather than telling customers, if you want to stay updated on our subprocessors, sign up to this website, go sign your customers up to that website. 
Because then if you change it, it will automatically notify them and you can put on there the date that the change is to take effect, the date when Mm -hmm. the subprocessor is to start doing work. Let's be honest. Most companies are not going to get rid of a subprocessor just because one customer says no. They're going to try to come up with an alternate. No, but then at least you have the possibility to get out of the contract if that is really a deal breaker for you. Yeah. And there's no workaround if there's no workaround. Yeah. But I can imagine that, for example, if you are a U.S. company suddenly starting to use a Chinese data center, uh, that that might be problematic for some. Right. That might just be something customers might want to object to. And you should honor that objection. They actually do have the right to tell a vendor what to do with the data, like storing mm-hmm. it in China. I'm sorry. So, yeah. are, are y'all are y'all seeing me roll my eyes here? <laughs> it's complicated on both are. sides. It's complicated both on the customer side and on the processor side or the but vendor side. But that is side. exactly why it should be a negotiation. It should be a conversation. And you should yeah. be able to talk about that. And and also trying to understand each other's point and find compromise. Yeah, it and is. I think now, in today's day and age, uh, where you you just say, "Oh well, just create an account on our website, click through, and then automatically you have accepted all the terms and conditions, including a data processing agreement and standard contractual clauses and everything, without you having been able even to take a look at them before yeah. you click through." And the, and the embedded links to the other things that give yeah. more information. And that's not how it works. It's exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting to, to work through all that. I get wanting to have everything public. 90% of people are going to click through it and do it, but there may not be. And what I really hate is when salespeople say, well, why are you negotiating the contract when we're just having you approve a new SOW? Was that contract ever really negotiated? And by the way, the customer always has the right to renegotiate a contract. The vendors that I usually recommend to not ever do business with again are the ones that say, oh, no, you can't renegotiate this. We've already signed. I try Mm. to be respectful and wait until renewal time to renegotiate. But frankly, the customer can ask for a renegotiation at any time. Because there may be something that changed with their own contracts, with their own upstream customers, or something that changed in the law that they're subject to. It can happen. Or a change of leadership, or a change of risk appetite, or... Or something. Who knows what? Maybe there's a new privacy officer simply doesn't like a particular clause. Hmm, let me see. Right? (laughs) But seriously, the vendor that tells says that, no, you can't renegotiate this. We've already signed. That's going to be a vendor that in the future, when you have a business issue you need to work with, is not going to cooperate. That is a big indicator that the relationship is not going to be successful. At least come back with, oh, it's not typical for us to renegotiate. Is there a particular problem that you have that we should talk about? Maybe we can do an amendment. At least just don't say no. No is a bad word. But once everything is signed and the vendor is in place, your job is not done. You need to classify your vendors. Now, you can go out in the company and ask 10 different people, who are your most critical vendors? You're going to get 10 different answers. Mm-hmm. The reason being, some of them classify it as to what vendors, if they went down, would you not be able to offer your services? Period. It would, it would stop. Critical vendors. Which ones? 
have your most sensitive data, which ones have the biggest volume of your data. And I'm talking personal data and company confidential trade secrets, different things that you may have that are your crown jewels internally. Which ones have the data? Which ones have the greatest volume of data? Which ones are in locations that carry risk in and of themselves because of how the data processing occurs or the, you know, it's just not a good place to be. There's a lot of different ways to classify vendors, but at some point you're going to have to come to an agreement with the other parts of your company, whether it's risk management, whether it's audit, whether it's finance, whatever, to identify who your riskiest or who your most critical vendors are and based on what qualification. Mm-hmm. If it is a high-risk personal data management vendor, then you need to know how you're classifying your data. And you can't just call all personal data highly sensitive because all personal data is not highly sensitive. If well, it is, depends if it a bit is, on where you work. I mean, in a hospital, I would be well, more what tempted I'm saying to is, say that. But the, but the CFO who signs the contract, his name and title is not highly sensitive personal information. True. And there are companies who define into their personal information, including the information of their employees. That's fine. And then they want to go define their confidential information, which includes information on their employees. That's fine. Then they want to include their protected information, which is their personal information and their confidential information that they've provided to you. They provided the name of the CFO and his title. So mm-hmm. legitimately, by your round and round definitions, you're legitimately saying that that company can't do business with you because they can't use your email address. On a practical level, that's not what they mean. On a contractual level, that's exactly what they're saying. What it says. Well, and then when you have signed a contract and you have classified the contract and you have classified the vendor, you're still not done because then you also will need to update your processing activities records. Yes. And not just under the GDPR, also under many of the mm-hmm. other accountability-based laws around the world, which is basically the whole new generation of data protection laws, including all the U.S. state laws. Yeah. And you does it impact have, your DPIA? Well, do you need to do a new one? Because it might be right. a new high-risk processing operation. You need to document your vendor. You need to document the system or systems that you purchase and also how they are going to be used in the in the operations in your organization. Uh, and don't and you wish indeed, there was a global find and replace for, for vendors? If you have all your records of processing activity and you're using a software solution, don't you wish you could just pull up a vendor, let's say Amazon, and you want to replace that vendor with Microsoft, it would just automatically go through and replace it in all of the processing activities where you've listed Amazon already, replace them with Microsoft, Bring them to your attention and go, here's the 53 processes that had Amazon who now have Microsoft. Please review and verify that you're replacing these. And then here's your DPIA to go do and make sure nothing's changed. Have you ever put that forward as a feature request for any of the software companies that you've worked with? I have. Okay. Because indeed, Maybe it makes sense. I need it to would create my own privacy software company, Paul. Oh, please, I think we could tell them how this please, needs to happen. Please don't. There are already 300 and something of those. And <laughs> Oh, my gosh. So, yes, you have to do your ongoing evaluations as well. If they are your riskiest, most critical vendors, you might want to do them more than even just once a year. You might want to do a quick tie-in every quarter. You yeah, might where are you going to find the time to do that? You're not, but let's just say you might want to. If your business would go down, if you did not have that vendor, 
might want to make sure a little bit more often that that vendor is still functioning. But on a privacy and security level, your high-risk vendors, you really should look at every year. Your low-risk vendors should be at least every two or three years. I mean, if it's just someone you buy pencils and toilet paper from, maybe you don't need to do a vendor assessment, but every three years. But it's nice to do it on your contract renewals, especially your low-risk vendors where you can just send them and say, hey, here's what we have on you so far. Has anything changed? Do we need to update anything? Stuff like that. I mean, they're definitely going to update you if the way they accept payments has changed. So, Is there anything we need to know? Yeah, exactly. But also reach out internally to the business owner of that vendor, of that process that has the vendor. So you might have, you have 53 processes with one vendor. You might have 53 business owners, but reach out to them and ask them how they're doing with the service or the product that that vendor provides. Are the pencils always breaking? Do they snap in half? Do the erasers not work? Maybe we need no pencils. Get the toilet paper and don't get me started on bad toilet paper. <laughs> you might need a new vendor. Here's your sign. I don't think that is the responsibility of the Data Protection Council in the organization. Probably not, but it might be the responsibility of the third-party risk manager to make sure yeah. that the whatever it is they're providing is good. On a privacy and security level, if it is someone that impacts how your data is protected, you might want to make sure. Yeah. It's, it's an option, but it could be there. Still, I think this this last recommendation on the review of the there contracts... There is nothing more private than toilet tissue, though. No, but I mean, the, the, the recommendation you made on, on reviewing contracts every so often, it's true. Yeah. At the same time, that works if you are part of a larger organization. If you are part of a very small team, you just simply do not pick have your the battles. time for those regular reviews. And you need, indeed, you need to pick your battles. You need yep. to prioritize. And indeed, for some of the high-risk ones, for sure, you need to take a look at, a look at them on a regular basis. But for yeah. other Even ones, if there's just 10, if you just only identify there are 10 critical vendors that are handling our data and those are the 10 you need to really pay attention to, do that. But yeah. I get it. You're a small house. I've always been in a small house. Paul's always been in a small house. Pick your battles. And also, if you are, if you are a small house, also question critically if there is a request for a new vendor, do we actually need them? Yeah, absolutely. Because every new vendor onboarded is a lot of time from legal. It's a lot of time from compliance. It is a lot of time from the people dealing with risk. It is a lot of time from security for the review. And then also your IT department will need to onboard them. They will need to implement them. They will need to manage licenses, maybe include them in the company multi-factor authentication mechanisms and make sure that roles are assigned. You might be all of those people. And indeed, you might be all of those people at the same time. So also, don't hesitate to push back to the business if you think that a vendor may not be necessary or that there is simply no time yeah. for a review at this time of year um, and come back in six months because right now is not the good moment to onboard and, and assess a new vendor. And I get it. Your business people, or if you're if you're the vendor side, your salespeople, they really want you to do this because their livelihood, their livelihood may depend on how quick you review this contract. But I will say, 
And I don't know if this person is listening to our podcast. The salesperson that reaches out to me on LinkedIn to say, oh, I appreciate your help with this contract. It means a lot to me personally. Stop that. That is not appropriate. (laughs) Salespeople, eh? (laughs) Right. Salespeople on LinkedIn, just please don't. Did you hear my unintended hack? Nope. Since I have the heart of privacy at the beginning of my name, now when I get those those sales spam that comes in, it's dear of <laughs> rather than dear K or dear Dr. Royal. It is dear of. So I can I can tell which ones are crappy. Yeah, there's only one heart of privacy. And there's it only one strong OG. for serious privacy. <laughs> so before we wrap up, any final words of wisdom on vendor management? It's hard. It's complicated. You can make it easier. You can make it less complicated. Just absolutely identify where the high risks are and know what the risk appetite of your company is and make your recommendations to your executives on what needs to happen and document it. It's not a, I'm going to get you kind of thing. It is showing that within the restraints that you have, the constraints that you have based on money, based on people, based on time. These are the decisions you had to make. And that might be your get out of jail, maybe not free card, but it shows that you took your role seriously. And try to standardize as much as you can for your internal processes. From the RFP to the onboarding, it is important to have that process as much standardized as possible. And build your relationships with people. That is probably going to be the biggest plus on your side ever is to have that relationship with people so they understand you're not doing this just to make the process more difficult. You really are looking out for the best interests of the company and doing your job. They pay you to be paranoid. Be paranoid. So on that note, we'll wrap up another episode of Serious Privacy. (laughs) Thank you for joining us this week. Um, if you like the episodes, join the conversation on LinkedIn. Find us under Serious Privacy. You'll find us on social media at, at Podcast Privacy. You will find Kay as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol B. Until next week, goodbye. Bye, y'all. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're... Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, 
Check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.